Let's do it. We are so glad you're listening to this early episode of Kick-Ass Queers, but there's just a little something we want to let you know. You may find that the audio is lacking in places. I believe the technical term is cock-a-poopy. It's... <laughs> yes, it's, it is. It's rough. It is cock-a-poopy. We, we really like the content. We hope you enjoy the content as well. So we hope that you yeah, just stick it, with us. It should be noted, Rachel and I both have degrees in exactly this <laughs> and should not have faced these challenges. Fun fact, Larry and I actually met in our degree program that taught us how to do exactly this. So <laughs> stay in school, kids. <laughs> and, and we both work in higher ed. That's the amazing thing. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Kick-Ass Queers. I'm Larry Womack. And I'm Rachel Stewart. And today we're going to be discussing a civil rights icon who was a drag king, a circus performer, a street vigilante, and kind of an all-around superhero who probably threw the first punch at the Stonewall Uprising. Fantastic. I'm excited to hear about this unicorn of a human. Yeah, I mean, today's episode is going to blow your mind. I knew a bit about the subject before I started researching this episode, and obviously I thought she was a vitally important figure or, or I wouldn't have chosen it. But the more I learned, the more completely enamored I became of her. I also learned through researching this episode that basically every biography you've ever heard or read of her is totally wrong for at least the first three decades of her life. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, and I mean, I didn't uncover all of this myself, and we'll get to this later. If you read or listen to biographies of her published really up to a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, you'll see a narrative of her early life that Stormy told that goes something like this. She was the daughter of a wealthy white man and a black employee of his family business born in New Orleans on Christmas Eve in 1920. Her father took wonderful care of her and her mother. The family moved off to California at some point so that her parents could get married, but she was so badly bullied that she was sent off to a fancy private school to be raised by her grandfather. She then, as a teenager, joins the circus, then heads off to Chicago to become this globetrotting jazz singer, a bodyguard for the mafia, and eventually the queen of the drag kings. And the crazy thing about this is the parts of that story that you would maybe suspect to be untrue, those are the true ones. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> when you're like, there's no way she joined the circus. Oh, she, she joined the circus. Um, All right, join the circus. She she was definitely a successful jazz singer. But some parts of the story kind of fall apart once you hit her later teens. And the timeline just doesn't make any sense at all. Like, she's in a private school, but also the circus, and is also a jazz singer, and may or may not be a bodyguard for the mafia. Maybe she just didn't need a lot of sleep and had a lot of energy. Unfortunately, one detail, for example, that would not be correct. California didn't actually legalize interracial marriage until Stormy would have been 27 by this timeline. Oh, wow. So no yeah. way her parents moved there to get married. No way. And in at least one early interview, she mentions being in foster care and in others being mostly raised by her grandfather. What is not in dispute is that growing up, she faced the same kind of horrific racist harassment and violence 
that other mixed-race people at the time experienced, not being accepted by either the black or white communities due to her mixed race. On top of that, Stormy was pretty androgynous. If you look at videos of her taken later in life, you will definitely see that. At this point, she would have had long hair and be very female presenting. When you watch videos of her from later in life, you're kind of like, she registers as a man, like a gay man for sure, but kind of like a man mm-hmm. most of the time. Right. Or at least to me, she does. Okay. Your, your interpretation or experience may vary. I think the main thing that would have stood out was her voice, which was pretty masculine. She said that her father's money was even a cause for attacks, which may have been true. And she was gay. But she said that it wasn't until she was 18 that she was quite able to name what was different about her in that way. So you have to picture this girl who is juggling a lot of really marginalized identities while simultaneously not fitting in with any of those communities. You want to hear something really heartbreaking? I don't know. Does it have to to do with five con? Does it have to do with five concentration camps, Larry? It do- it doesn't. It's let okay. It's oh it's still pretty heartbreaking, but no concentration camps okay. this time. Okay. On the Stonewall Veterans website, she was asked to name a favorite song, and she answered "Being Green," also sometimes known as Kermit's song. Oh and wow! She also in the 1987 documentary "Stormy: The Lady of the Jewel Box," which is on Criterion. I feel like I push criterion a lot here i swear they're not giving me any money but it but you can if you want to yeah give me money criterion please in this 1987 documentary she says that her favorite expression was it ain't easy being green that just makes me want to give her a hug like it really does probably having that much discrimination and bullying from all the groups probably gave her a pretty tough exterior as well Oh, yes, absolutely. And let's be clear. When we say bullying, that is a very misleading and weak descriptor for the kinds of violence she was facing. Right. She was scarred. She wound up in a leg brace reportedly for years, which gave her a limp for the rest of her life. She was left hanging on a fence. Oh, that's a grim precursor to Matthew Shepard. Yeah. And she said pretty consistently throughout her life that at around the age of 15, she started physically fighting back against the bullies. And you will see as we continue that that instinct to fight back became a defining feature of her personality, perhaps the defining feature of her personality in her later years. And it, it makes you respect her a lot right out of the gate for having survived all of this. Absolutely. And and one of the things, again, to, to sort of think about with intersectionality is, you know, here you have Stormy, who's literally getting bullied for all of it. Oh, absolutely. And when it comes to her skin tone, we're going to go into that a lot later. But if you look again at these films of her, just depending on the lighting, she could pass for black or white or several other groups. It, it would be very, very hard for her to find a community, which is going to play a big role in her later life as well. All right, well, let's hear it. So as for her early life, yes. luckily for us, there's this person named Chris Starfire who has done some really amazing 
genealogical type research into Stormy's life and identity before she was a public figure. And they have the receipts. We're talking. And their last name is Starfire. Like, so perfect. This is amazing already. Yeah, I I am Hmm. so blown away by the amount of research that Chris did and so grateful that they shared so much with this podcast. I I actually asked them. Yeah, I, I asked them to be a guest, but we faced some accessibility issues. So we just did a little interview by email where I asked a few questions and, and they were very helpful about that. And That's we're awesome. Thank you so much, that. Chris. Yeah. yeah. Chris is Chris is kind of the superhero of the Stormy story after Absolutely. Stormy. So what they found adds up to a life story that's so much more complete and true and actually I think more compelling than what Stormy had told people before. I just cannot express how impressed I am and how thorough this research was done or my disappointment that so many people covered Stormy's life without ever really diving into these things that just didn't add up. I mean, one of the first things I checked was whether or not her parents could have been married in California at the time. And that like, that's so easy to Google and just people. I was going to say that's so easy to Google, right? That's just, yeah. I mean, again, though, it's, it's, you don't need facts when you're creating mythology. Well, and we'll get into this later, but Stormy was an entertainer, so it makes sense to create mythology. The real story, at least the parts we know so far, mostly thanks to Chris's work of Stormy DeLavier's life. Right now, no known record of her birth. Louisiana's online birth records, which I, I checked, only go up to 1921. And we actually think she was born a bit later, for reasons I'll get into in a moment. And there likely wouldn't have been a birth certificate anyway, because again... Her existence was illegal. So the first place we find a record of Stormy DeLavier is in the 1930 census. Okay. In which she is listed, and this is also a little heartbreaking, as Viva Thomas, a six-year-old boarder in the home of Harvey and Rose Hublitz living in Nebraska. She's listed as white, so she might have been passing as white at the time. And it it won't be the last time that happens. And it looks like they had started to write a different first name for her, then crossed it out and wrote Viva over it. So we don't even know if her name really was the name that is recorded here. Okay, so Um, so by the time we get to her massive cultural relevance within the gay rights movement, she was Stormy DeLavier. Yeah, and how do we know that, right? Well, the reason we know this is Stormy is because on the next census in 1940, the Hublitz household now has a 16-year-old daughter named Viva Hublitz. Stormy Dale, who is Stormy's known slash acknowledged pre-drag name as a blues singer. Articles about Stormy Dale have photos from a session that Stormy used later as well. Same, Same outfit, same lighting, same set, slightly different pose, but the pose is almost identical. We are told that she is Viva Hublitz, the girl on the census, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Harvey Hublitz, the, the parents on the census, of Alliance, Nebraska, the town on the census, who graduated mm. from Alliance High School in 1942. Okay. And in the high school yearbook, it's Stormy. It, it's a picture of her. Okay. So, and it's recognizable as the person that we see yes. throughout history. Okay. Yeah. Okay. One of those stories says she sings in Omaha. And many mention her low singing voice. And uh, Stormy was a contralto. So again, yeah, her photo, her stage name, her profession, a matching description of her voice. It's her. That feels that feels like we've got a yeah, that's a match. Yeah. 
in, in Harvey's obituary, she's listed as a foster child. Um, okay. And it's mentioned that he was discharged from the army in New Orleans in 1920. So oh. he was mm. right. Um, mm-hmm. Now, the ages don't quite line up because she's listed as six years old in 1930. That would not be having been born in 1920. No. But if that was the only date that she had to go by, maybe that was it. Or maybe she was older and she just hadn't been in school before she moved there and they didn't want to say she was nine or like, I don't know. There there are many, many ways you could account for this age discrepancy, but it's definitely there. Then in Rose's obituary and Rose also lived in New Orleans for a while. Okay. She's listed as a stepdaughter. Then as her siblings die, she is eventually no longer mentioned. So it feels like the family started to distance itself from her, which is sad. Yeah, that's awful. I mean, none of that is great. It's like, first of all, it's all confusing as hell because stepdaughter implies relation by marriage. Foster Mm -hmm. implies relationship by nobody, the, the original family not being able to or not wanting to take care of her. None of these actually imply we wanted her and she's ours. Right. I mean, so except you, you... they did eventually, you know, ad- adopt her. They gave her the last name and things like that. But I mean, listing a kid as a boarder is pretty cold, honestly. Chris Starfire has a, a different theory based on some things that they uncovered. They believe that a story that Stormy told a journalist in the 60s that she never actually knew her birth parents is probably true. And that someone who knew Rose Hublitz from before her marriage to Harvey connected her to ask if she would take in Viva who became Mm. Stormy. So that's sort of opposite from what I might feel was implied by the record, which is that the father was actually closer or more accepting, but both can also be true. Yeah, I mean, at this point, we can see again with so many uh, of our elder queers, the, the details, especially at the beginning, tend to be a little bit hazy. She also, interestingly, told her friend of 25 years, Lisa Canestrosi, who I, I reached out to but didn't hear back from in time to get her on here, that she identified as Black because she was very close with her mother. So it makes you wonder about any number of possibilities that could make this all come to be who knows who knows who knows what happened right yeah so the real smoking gun in all of this aside from i mean the article with her photo is pretty convincing too um is that chris starfire filed a foia so we have her social security application from 1955 okay and on that she lists her name as viva stormy de lavier Mm, there goes the Viva. So, so Viva seems to be the common thread. Right. Well, Viva and, you know, Storm or Stormy. Um, right. And in her signature, though not the name that she notes up top, she uses a Y the way that she did when she was going by Stormy Dale. When she spells Stormy DeLavier, she, she does the Beyonce at the end. Yeah. Probably to make herself seem more French. 
Um, well, the Lavier. So we have some really big questions about her birth parentage, but her upbringing from ages 6 to 26 is pretty well documented. She was okay. probably born around 1923, but possibly as early as 1920, probably in New Orleans. She grows up in the Hublet's house, which is in Alliance, Nebraska, where eventually she comes to be considered a daughter, at least of Harvey. We know that she was still visiting family in Alliance off and on, until at least 1946, when she's reportedly living in Omaha, which is on the opposite side of the state. Like, you think, oh, they're both in Nebraska. They're a long ways away from each other. And she seems to have had at least a moderately successful singing career because there are all these articles about her. Between 1939 and 1942, there are about a dozen newspaper clippings in Alliance showing that Viva was singing as a soloist in high school concerts at the VFW Christmas party, at the Legion Auxiliary, at church, doing cowboy songs at the rodeo, and her low voice gets mentioned a lot. In recaps of singing contests, in one she's awarded superior, and another she's rated as excellent. Really interestingly to me, one of these high school contests proceeded in spite of a noteworthy storm. Do we have an Mm. origin story? Probably not, but let's speculate wildly. No, it's speculate wildly. Yes, do it. Truth is about to get better than speculation because... Oh, excellent. After this, we have the circus. Oh, I love it. She joins the circus. Stormy had long said that as a teenager, she was in the Ringling Brothers Circus as a jumping horse rider. There's a lot of reason to believe this story. It fills gaps in her documented life story. And it also fits another part of her narrative, which is that at some point in 1943... She meets the love of her life, a reportedly very beautiful woman named Diana, who is a dancer and an aerialist. So where else do you meet an aerialist (laughs) than in the circus, right? Uh, I mean, that's there's very few places. Cirque du Soleil, Ringling Brothers. Yeah, circus. So I think we've reached the point in this podcast where we're like, okay, now I want to see the movie. Like a lot of this other stuff was just like, oh, who's this, who's, you know, she, she's got this really touching background, but like now she's in the circus having a lesbian love affair. Love it. So the two fell really deeply in love and they built this really lasting relationship, which we'll talk a little the bit you, about. Did they U-Haul or whatever the, like, whatever the equivalent was? You know, I don't know. There's some weird stuff that's also going to come up later. <laughs> okay. But the love of Diana, no one seems to question, particularly people who knew her. But, you know, if she grew up in the Midwest and was a bit of an outsider, this makes a lot of sense, right? She's joining the circus. And really often in the 19th and 20th centuries, people who are outsiders because of some marginalized identity turn to the entertainment industry for acceptance and, frankly, employment. Yes. But in the circus, she has to ride side saddle because she was a lady. And, of course, she fell off and fractured some bones in the fall and decided that the circus was not for her, even if Diana was. That's so, lovely. I, that's that, that sounds like the, the end of a beautiful rom-com. Right. They're running away from the circus. Mm-hmm. So she's done with the circus by the mid-40s, and she's off to Omaha, then eventually to tour in other places, at, at least to Florida and Texas, we know for sure, as a blues and jazz singer. And we have to imagine that this is also made very difficult and very complicated by her race. Even Billie Holiday at times was made to wear blackface because venues or local officials thought she was too light-skinned to share the stage with her band. 
and Billie Holiday had much, much darker skin than Stormy DeLavier. It also probably would have been complicated by her deep contralto voice, which absolutely sounds so good, but kind of like a standard male crooner of the era. In fact, sometimes later she was credited as a tenor. But anyway, while touring in the winter of 1946, she's at a, a club on the Venetian Causeway in Florida. Touring as a singer, and she meets this gay couple, Danny Brown and Doc Benner. They had just returned to the club because the club was sort of like taken over by the government in World War II. And finally, we see some narrative things that are supported by both her recollection of events and newspaper ads and other documents showing her performing in Florida at this time. Okay. So in 1939, this couple that she met had taken over the Jewel Box Review, which was this huge female impersonation touring company that played to all kinds of audiences all over the country. They had really top-notch production values, some of the best performers in the country. And interestingly, unlike a lot of the drag reviews at the time, this one was queer-owned and operated. Uh, but also mm. very family-friendly. So it it really... St- right. Of course, so they, one would, they'd be, they would be reading uh, children's books at libraries, is what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, this was sort of a thing that they pitched you know, bring your family on Saturday night and see this really cute review of people impersonating celebrities and things like that. Love it. So she becomes friends with this couple. After this, we think that she settles in Chicago. And this is because she mentions time and again to reporters and friends that she lived in Chicago after high school. So she might even have been based out of Chicago after she left the circus, but while she was on tour, I I don't know. But her life from 1950 to 1955 is actually like the biggest, most tantalizing mystery of any of this. Um, There are a lot of contradictions in her stories about and around Chicago. First, her singing persona at the time was very female presenting. Photographs of her in those years or in the immediately preceding years show her very simply but fabulously made up in that classic blues and jazz singer with uh, an evening dress and flowers in her hair. But some of her stories of that time period paint a completely different picture. She told many people that when she lived in Chicago, she worked as a bodyguard for the mob, which it's kind of hard to picture her being intimidating while being this like glamorous jazz singer. Her friend of a quarter century Lisa Canistrasi, who I mentioned earlier, said on an episode of the Nod podcast that she was in Chicago already living as a straight man during her private life most of the time. Okay, so recap. She was, man, this does. This feels it's like... It's a lot. A, it's, it's hard to... It's a different it's shade different of stories. Brian Stonehouse all over again. So she's she is a straight cis male or straight male passing person by day a jazz a feminine jazz singer slash mafia bodyguard by night just want to make sure i got this correct if these are true and if they're happening at the same time you know maybe there was a a, we don't know if these are concurrent or consecutive got it right right the idea of her living as a man is so that she and diana can live openly as a couple by concealing her gender right absolutely that makes sense and especially if she's got a little voice and she already 
sort of leans masculine, it's it's almost easier just to do that. It has not been unheard of in our history for queer women to essentially pose as men in their everyday lives to gain employment, to live more huh? open lives with female partners, or even join the military or, or become a doctor when that wasn't allowed. In fact, jazz musician Billy Tipton around the same time married five different women and was only outed to his adopted children by the coroner. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I think that's so fascinating when you hear those stories of soldiers in the wars or where the only way they found out that that, mm-hmm. that person was female was when they took off the uniform and didn't find what they were looking for. Yeah, the main difference oh. seems to be that Stormy, by 1955 at least, identifies as a woman and is not hiding that identity from people she knows or who ask. She also might have been passing as white because it has been reported that Diana was white. That seems to be pretty consistent. Though interracial marriage was legal in Illinois at the time, so this might not have been a legal necessity, but it still would have invited judgment similar to what a lesbian relationship would have. So who knows? Maybe she was posing as a white man. We don't know how much of this is true. But that could also explain why she stops visiting family or at least making the papers when she does during this time period. Because, you know, she and Diana were posing as man and wife. Are you ready for a big twist? Ready for it. Okay. Do it. Twist Twist it. So also, sometime around 1953, she allegedly gets married to a man. So she was polyamorous. Who knows? She told friends later in life that she'd been married and had children at some point. And there is definitely reason to believe that this is true, or at least that she had put the story forward at a much earlier date. When we talk about things that biographies of her have missed, the one that struck me as most glaring is that in the February 8th, 1962 issue of Jet Magazine, which was a big deal, and you can find it on Google Books, so you can like search for her name and this will come up. There's a little photo feature that says, quote, she seeks divorce, clad in male clothing for which she has become famed as the only female star of the review 25 Men and a Girl. Stormy Delavier began proceedings to annul her nine-year marriage in Los Angeles, where the review is currently playing. Annul? Yeah, after nine years. Annul after nine years? You know, there's only really one way, supposedly, well, two ways that you can annul a marriage. And she, I mean... Some of her friends say she had kids and she didn't like to talk about it. Okay. All right. Again, the mystery deepens. Yeah, this is the biggest mystery period of her life. She also said in another interview in the mid-60s that she'd just been divorced from an air conditioning guy named George S. Freeman. And another later article says that she has experience in air conditioning and interior decorating. So this is, I mean, oh, I this just isn't just her. like That's... one weird thing that a friend said once. This is something that very probably did happen. But, you know, was I mean, it? I mean, I don't know. I guess after nine years, maybe I, I won't I won't wildly speculate about that. And like, was this a real attempt to lead a straight life? Was it a lavender marriage? Did this guy even exist? Where is Diana in all of this? I, I I don't know. Right. But there's basically an entire five-year phase in her life 
where we have no idea what she was up to? Well, we have ideas, but we don't know for sure. And the ideas are wildly contradictory and all kind of supported by, by, by other things that are out there. You know, it's just, it's so fascinating because I, I, you know, now that we're, you know, a couple of episodes deep into this, one of the things that I'm really struck by is the theme of we just don't know, right? Of like these, mm-hmm. these gaps or these places. And, and, and granted, I understand that documentation is not nearly as invasive as it is now. However, I, I do think it's interesting that with each one of these people, we're like, we don't know. Like, we don't, we don't really know because they didn't talk a lot about it. Um, or there was conflicting reports or, or whatever it was. And so in this way, you know, we generations before us have done exactly what we're doing now, which is this wild speculation, which is like, I don't know, maybe this was what it is. And, and, you know, in the way that mythology gets born is like, oh, well, somebody said that it must be true. And then it gets started. It starts to get preached as gospel instead of as conjecture. So there's, right? a, there's a lot of wild stuff going on in her story. And, I don't know that it's, I don't know that they can't all be true, but also they can't all be true. But I also get why if you're trying to book work as a blues singer around the country, do you want to say you're from Nebraska at all? No, you're going to go with New Orleans. You're going to go with Chicago. You will take a very French sounding last name, although she does misspell it. I was going to say it's it's misspelled, but that's fine. Yeah, it's spelled Stormy instead of Stormy, but she pronounced it Stormy. And Delavia is spelled incorrectly, but that's fine. Yeah. So finally, the events of her life are going to be better documented and make a lot more sense. I promise. Okay. Remember Brown and Brenner, the couple that she met in Florida. Right. Yes. The jewel box. So they were looking for a woman for their act. And the show was sold as 25 Men and a Girl, America's foremost female impersonators in the world's most unusual show. And the idea was that you, in the audience, were to guess which of these performers was an actual cis woman. They wouldn't have said cis woman back then, but that's sort of what they meant. Well, you know what? I love it. I love how back then it was just like a curiosity instead of we need to kill them. Yeah, yeah. Both more and less tolerance for drag because it's still illegal to wear drag in the streets, but bring your kids to the matinee, right? Um, right. So, of course, the, the big twist is that all of the dancers were drag queens or trans women, and the male MC had been the woman this whole time. <gasps> no! Shocker. I feel like people would have seen that coming a mile away, right? That is the plot. That is the, the season finale plot twist we were all waiting for, <laughs> even though the whole thing is called Jewel box review female impersonators. I hope people ruined that for other people. I thought it was going to be females impersonating things. I didn't know it was going to be men impersonating females. <laughs> so Stormy would reveal that she was a woman in this big dramatic song at the end. And she just rip she... off her shirt and show her tits. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Although that's actually a really good question because like, what if you weren't paying attention to the lyrics and people were like, you didn't catch that yeah. that was the woman? You're at the end of it. You've been drinking a lot of absinthe because that's not illegal yet. Mm. Green fairy has come to visit you and you're not paying attention. And you're like, I never saw any dude or I never saw any lady. And they're like, what are you talking about? Pull your so, tits out. Everybody's going to know it. <laughs> I'm so lost. You started talking about tits and I get lost. <laughs> oh. the... 
So the, the, the show is a huge success and Stormy remained with it for the rest of its run, which ended in 1969. 1969. Yeah. That's going oh, to be a very important year in Yeah, that's life. that's a very interesting year for that to end. Also at this point, she is using the stage name Stormy DeLavier. She mentions in her bio and some of the booklets from the Jewel Box Review that she sang as Stormy Dale. She's really pushing this backstory that she grew up in New Orleans and then sort of fled to Chicago and has, has been this glamorous, globetrotting blues singer ever since, which probably true, very selective, but true. And I don't think the intention here or ever was to deceive people. I just think that she was an entertainer. So well, I mean, yeah, it's a story she's going to tell. And it's interesting that she was so open about it, too. In the earlier newspaper articles, she's like, Stormy Dale, this is really my name and this is really my family. And then at the Jewel Box, she's like, oh, I used to sing as Stormy Dale. It's really interesting to look through this lens to get an idea of what drag was at this particular point in time, which was essentially just everyone trying to be as pretty as possible and often impersonating specific celebrities. And even Stormy, in one interview at the time, said that she tried hard not to offend men with her impression. She said, quote, you wear men's clothing, but you don't want to hurt a man's feelings because you're really a woman in his clothes. That's mm-hmm. really interesting. Yeah, that's an mm-hmm. interesting take. And it, it's interesting that this makes her the star of the show. Mm-hmm. There is a documentary about this time in her life called Stormy, the Lady of the Jewel Box, which I definitely recommend. I mentioned it earlier. And in it, she says, quote, it was very easy All I had to do was just be me and let people use their imaginations. It never changed me. I was still a woman. Later, she says, but you know, the strange thing is, I never moved any different than I had when I was wearing women's clothes. They only saw what they wanted to see and they believed what they wanted to believe. And if you wonder if this has anything to do with socialization, she also added, you couldn't fool children though. The little ones, never. They'd say, oh no, that's a lady. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. There are a few programs from the Jewel Box Review over at QueerMusicHeritage.com that include a page about Stormy, quote, the only girl in the Jewel Box Review. And again, we should remember that in some lighting, Stormy could also very easily pass for white. Right. Her social security again lists her as white. Okay. And if you look at photographs and then moving images of her later in lit other lighting, she reads as being of African descent or more racially ambiguous. But I don't know that many people would look at her and just assume that she was black. Mm-hmm. In later life, she did identify as black. And in later life, it was not 1955 and she wasn't touring all over the country. So you have this woman of color allegedly fairly convincingly passing for a white man on stage to mixed audiences night after night all over the country. The role comes really naturally to her and it's a big hit. There's gender bending and there's race bending and there's, it's just all, I mean, she's even like country like or state bending. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's all just so much more complicated than even now we really understand. So, one big change. Okay. Because she's playing this man in the Jewel Box review. 
She also now has short hair. Right. And according to her, she's still wearing women's clothes on the streets. Don't know if she had really been living as a man before, like she had told her friend later, and if that changed okay. or, or what. But according to her, in multiple interviews, she's still wearing women's clothes on the streets with the short hair. So she gets arrested twice, having been mistaken for a man in drag. So she is a woman dressed as a woman who gets arrested for being a man in drag. Yes. Which tells you exactly how fucking stupid all these laws that they're passing right now are. Yeah. Um, and if you look at footage of her later in life, this seems completely plausible. She definitely reads as male again, although albeit probably a gay man. And she would later point to this as the reason that she started to wear men's clothing even when she was not performing. Yeah. I mean, if the shoe fits, mm -hmm. right? Is it true? I kind of hope that this is the reason. Also, kind of amusingly, maybe this is just mythology building. I don't know. Okay. But she claimed to have struck up a minor friendship with the cop who arrested her. She said that he came to see the review told her she was tying her bow tie wrong and taught her how to do it properly. So just as she was helping teach the male performers at the jewel box how to dance in high heels, this cop is teaching her, her oppressors, how to tie. Right. <laughs> her oppressors are teaching her how to, how to dress more masculinely so that when they arrest her, it's for being more convincingly male. Yeah, yeah. I, Excellent. I love I, it. I should also note that bit about like teaching them how to walk in high heels is true. Yeah. She and the dancers all describe her relationship with them as one of really great respect and affection. And and things are moving along really well as far as yeah. I can tell for about 14 years. She's with Diana, whether again or still, and Diana would watch the show from the wings the jewel box is so successful that she starts hanging out with jazz performers who were in far more famous circles than she was moving in when she was touring with big bands herself. And she gets to know people like Nina Simone, Dinah Washington, Billie Holiday. And it, at least I know Holiday was being impersonated at the review. I think Dinah Washington was too. That's some firepower right there. Yeah. Damn. She's watching yeah. the first appearance of the Supremes at the Apollo from the wings. Gee, she, yeah, she befriends Diane Arbus, who photographs her. Right, yeah. And all the while, she's wearing men's clothing. And isn't that like the most incredible thing to imagine? She even it, moves into the freaking Chelsea Hotel at some point. Of, where of course she does. She lives there she for decades. And... During the time Love that it. she lived there, and it's it's hard to pin down exact dates, likely people who would have been through there as either permanent residents or transitory people would have included mm -hmm. Janis Joplin, Madonna, Edith Piaf, Marilyn Monroe, Leonard Cohen, of course, Andy Warhol, Jimi Hendrix, Thomas Wolfe, Joni Mitchell. She would have missed the death of Dylan Thomas by a couple of years, okay. but probably been there for the murder of Nancy Spungen. So she, I mean, this is, yeah, it's, oh, she is well, at the and center this is amazing. of the artistic and pop culture universe. Holy cow. That's like, I mean, that's the who's who of everybody at that time. Yeah. I mean, everybody goes to the Chelsea hotel mm -hmm. and she takes on more roles at the jewel box, basically running the show in roles from sort of, 
den mother to the male and trans woman performers to arranging the music and managing the stage. She's showing the guys how to walk in high heels, like we mentioned before. She's making sure everything right. goes according to plan in general. She's essentially managing the review at this point. Kinda, kinda. She, she, yeah. she's wearing a lot of hats. Yeah. Then comes the summer of 1969. Which is just a normal summer for the gays. Yeah, so three pivotal things happen in Stormy's life in fairly quick succession. Okay. The first was Stonewall. And we don't have time to talk about Stonewall, but we're going to talk about Stonewall. So let's talk about who, quote, started the Stonewall Rebellion. Now, if you ask me, it was the cops <laughs> and the misuse of state yeah, power. Yeah, I mean, if we're, if we're, if we're, if we're, real, we're real honest about that, it's, it was the cops. Right, um, right. But we're not, going to give, we're not going to give them credit for our revolution. So go but, ahead. But what fascinates people and, and really makes people think and debate is who fought back first. Who started to resist right. the, the proverbial who threw the first brick right which probably I, I don't know that anyone actually threw a brick that that might be a myth i mean it's sort of like women burning their bras during the feminist movement like three women in probably nebraska burned their bras it didn't really happen except to try to prove a point mm. so but the question is who fought back first like who started to resist and it's really really hard to tell okay so First, some logistics of how it reportedly went down. There are probably over 100 people in the club that night when the cops decided to raid it. And this wasn't the usual precinct that would raid them fairly regularly but not shut them down because they were paid protection money because the bar was owned by the mafia. This was a whole other division, and they wanted to shut it down because it was run by the mafia and was a gay bar and it had no fire exits and no running water. So they were just rinsing all the glasses in a big tub of dirty water before they'd use them for the next customer, which was linked to a hepatitis outbreak. And the bathrooms were filthy and often flooded. And the alcohol was pretty dodgy and probably some stuff they were making themselves and not what it said on the labels. And they were running a prostitution slash blackmail ring that was targeting wealthy clientele. So this is Riley's and Chico. <laughs> don't get us sued by Riley's. I, I don't think Riley's is open anymore. Oh, okay. But, you know, of course, all of this was happening because the mob were the only people who could operate gay bars. And they didn't mind if they treated their customers like shit because it was the only place to go. And right. you weren't allowed to have a liquor license if you served gay customers. In fact, they used to have these things called sip-ins where people would walk up to bars and say, I'm gay, serve me a drink. And that was a form of protest because that was illegal to do. So all of this is the fault of these discriminatory laws. And in fact, right. here's a fun fact. Stonewall was owned by a guy who was named, do we know this? I don't know this. He was named Fat Tony. Fat Tony. <laughs> Fat Tony. Just like the mobster in The Simpsons. I'm going to see that Simpsons predicted it. Right. So this other division is like, hey, the mob is running this bar. It's super illegal, like 50 ways, all of which are a result of this one stupid law. But still, they're going to shut it down. And they go in without notifying the local precinct, which was getting the bribes to protect the place. And they decide to do it on a Friday night when people will be there just to like shut it down and, and make a big statement or something. This is colossally stupid. It's, I don't know how they thought this would go because normally they would come in on like a Tuesday at six and round up some people that the owners didn't like 
and maybe book the people who are working there or whatever. But here they're going in where there are over a hundred people probably in there who are drunk and high and cranky and don't want the bar to be shut down. And is it is it true? Is it it's part of the mythology, right, that Judy Garland had died, so they were real cranky. I mean, I don't so it was the day of her funeral, but also these are really young people going to Stonewall, and Judy Garland would have been like their parents' music. It would have been like if you asked a bunch of 20-year-old gays today about Bette Midler, I think they'd just be like, what? That's that's something that older people listen to, which is a damn shame because we love Bette Midler. We love you, Bette. We love her. So the usual procedure when they would go in is they would arrest the employees if they could identify them, which is why they sent in four officers in civilian clothing to check the place out. And interestingly, the two female officers that they sent in never called out to be like, yeah, they're serving alcohol, this is illegal or whatever. They just hung out <laughs> for the night. That's probably because they probably fucking saw their girlfriends there. Jesus. One of them was definitely believed to have been a patron previously, and that's how they got in. Uh-huh. So because they don't call out and be like, hey, yeah, this is what's happening, it gets later and later. So the crowd is bigger and more, more, and more drunk. drunk. Yep. Right. Yep. And, okay. So they, they would arrest the employees. But they would also pick out people who were presumed to have been assigned one sex at birth, but were wearing clothing that was considered to belong to the other gender. And that's why gender non-conforming people weren't really allowed into the Stonewall. But some people found ways around it, like they would know the managers, or they would just put it on after they got in, like they'd run to the bathroom and put on their wig and, and all that. Change, yeah. So to check this, the cops would take the people believed to be assigned male birth at one room and those believed to be assigned female at birth to the other room and then they would line most of the patrons up just check their IDs and send them out the door like oh don't be gay again or whatever they're not there to arrest them even though just being there could technically be considered yeah, it's solicitation Correct. yeah yeah so okay. what happens is you have really four groups of people developing Outside the bar, there's people who've been let out, who are waiting for their friends, or even hoping to get let back in after the cops leave, or just waiting to stick around and see what happens. Right. There's the group inside the bar that's waiting to be ID'd and leave. And then those, right. there are the two groups of people being questioned or even examined to see if they're breaking these old cross-dressing laws. And the crowd has the cops way, way outnumbered. Eventually, it's like a hundred to one because more people are showing up. They're like, what's going on? Why is there a crowd outside the, the building? They're drunk. Right. They're high. It's late. This is not going to go the way the cops had imagined. Right. Witnesses who were there seemed to paint a picture of a crowd already really tense and resisting a little here and there. And again, we have all these groups of people. So no one has an omniscient view of all of these spaces where people are doing these things. Right. And, uh, I went through the arrest records from that first night and see that in the first batch, the people who they sent off just as the riot was starting, people were already identified to definitely be resisting, even beyond what various witnesses had recounted. Um, a David Van Ronk, the straight folk singer who worked at the bar, was arrested, quote, for assaulting the officer about the face with an unknown object. It was probably a double-hooded dildo. I hope so. I really hope so. Me too. Um, Me too. A wolf, 
adding to the mythology. <laughs> right? A Wolfgang Podolsky was arrested. <laughs> right? That's a great name. <laughs> well, we've got David Van Rong <laughs> at the straight, the straight country western singer and Wolfgang Huck. I don't Podolsky. remember. What was it? Oh, we're going to get a Podolsky. Yeah, he was arrested for striking an officer with a rolled newspaper so hard that they fell and fractured their wrist. Interestingly, both of these reports say the officer was struck in the left eye. A Thomas Statton threw things at the officers and incited the crowd to, quote, become very loud and refuse to comply. Raymond Castro. Quiet down. Get off my Raymond Castro. Raymond Uh Castro. Marilyn Fowler. And Vincent DePaul and Marilyn Fowler seems to have been quite a character that no one wanted anything to do with. She seemed like a really tough customer. Um, they were arrested for shoving and kicking an officer, apparently together as a group. And one officer was treated for a bite to their wrist. Savage. And all of these people were the ones who were sent to the station before all hell broke loose. Oh my gosh. So this is this is the this is the pre-funking before the actual Stonewall riot, as we know. Right. And I mean, we do have eyewitness accounts also of acts that sort of led up to the riot. Tammy Novak, a trans woman who was allowed in because she had lived with Fat Tony, mm-hmm. hit a cop with her purse. <laughs> and she was able to get away and escape arrest. You'll notice that her, her name was not on that list. Yeah, no. Jackie Hormona. Oh, because of Fat Tony. <laughs> Um, ja- Wait, ja- Hor- Hormona? Yeah, that sounds like a drag name, right? But it's actually this cis male blonde Puerto Rican sex worker. Jackie Hormona. Right. So if, if you look in pictures of the Stonewall riots, he's the blonde guy in the striped sweater. Okay. He fought back in various ways, and there are different accounts of that. But sort of towering above all of them, there is this mythical figure known as the Stonewall Lesbian. And this is where Stormy becomes really important to the story. Yes. Eyewitness accounts vary so tremendously on what exactly happened, but they generally agree that it was started by one butch lesbian who dressed as a man. Some say that she complained that her handcuffs were too tight and a cop hit her on the head with his nightstick and that ignited the riot. Others say that this woman dressed in men's clothing was being hauled into the wagon and shouted, why don't you guys do something and started rocking it. Another account I read said that she was put in a police car, not a wagon, and that she started rocking it and inciting the crowd after she had already hopped out the window and escaped. And this woman is said to be an older, remember Stormy's about 48-ish at the time, Right. butch lesbian dressed in men's clothing with short dark hair and a slim build. You can hey, see so, why she becomes a person huh. of interest here, right? Absolutely. Yeah, so keep in mind that no other woman than Marilyn Fowler was actually arrested that night because the others got away. And witnesses okay. say it definitely wasn't her. Marilyn was a hefty woman with light curly hair, and she was younger and a, a well-known street kid who, again, everyone was kind of like, she's crazy as hell. She's not allowed at our meeting. So people knew her. Stormy absolutely fits these descriptions. And Here is how she describes her actions that night. Quote, The cops were parading patrons out the front door of the Stonewall at about two o'clock in the morning. I saw this one boy being taken out by three cops, only one in uniform. Three to one. I told my pals, I know him. That's Wilson, my friend Sonia Jane's friend. Wilson briefly broke loose, but they grabbed the back of his jacket and pulled him right down on the cement street. 
One of them did a drop kick on him. Another cop senselessly hit him from the back. Right after that, a cop said to me, move, F word. Stormy didn't say F word. We're saying that for the children. Uh, thinking that I was a gay guy, I said, I will not. And don't you dare touch me. With that, the cop shoved me and I instinctively punched him right in his face. He bled. He was then dropping to the ground, not me. Or, to put it more succinctly in another interview, um, a cop hit her, she punched him back, and quote, I walked away with an eye bleeding, but he was lying on the ground out. Good job, Stormy. This is the only account I can find of an actual punch being thrown before the riots. Okay. And after that, you can probably assume that, one, they would have tried to arrest her, and two, if they did, she got away because she wasn't arrested that night. You will notice, though, that according to police reports, at least two cops had bleeding left eyes. So it's impossible without a time machine and multiple points of view to know what exactly happened. And it was absolutely just not as clean as this person started it with this one action. I think it's not especially controversial, though, to say, yeah, she probably played a key role in sparking the Stonewall Rebellion. But you can see even by her account, her friend Wilson had already resisted forcefully. Right. So, again, it's not like everyone was just sitting there taking it happily. And then one person was like, this isn't right. And threw a brick or something. At the same time, she started some shit. Yeah, it's very catchy and it's very iconic of, like, who threw the first brick. Um, what we can say is that she sort of proverbially threw one of the first bricks, so to speak. Even though there was no brick throwing people. Probably not, no. Someone did, though, uproot a parking meter. <laughs> and <laughs> they used that as a battering ram to try to get it when the cops were hiding later. And fun fact about mm. the the Stonewall Rebellion. Mm -hmm. The cop who led the raid literally wrote the army's manual on hand-to-hand -hand combat. And he said <laughs> that it was the most terrifying night of his life. <laughs> he was a World War II vet. Don't fuck with the queens! You, you do not, especially... Especially not Stormy, which we're going to get to in a little bit. From then on, she becomes a really key figure in the gay liberation movement. Okay. Eventually, she's chief of security, ambassador, and vice president of the Stonewall Veterans Association. And she's just very much at the forefront of gay liberation and gay rights. So, so Larry, can you, can you clarify when you say the Stonewall Veterans Association, is that veterans from the wars that they fought with the U.S. military, or is that veterans of the Stonewall Riot? It's veterans of the Stonewall Riot. But remember I told you a few pivotal things happened in the summer of 1969. Yes. And they are not all as awesome as a riot, sadly. Wow, because riots are so amazing. They always get born right. out of love and... And acceptance. Stonewall was June 28th. In July, Diana, who Stormy had been with for over a quarter of a century, with possibly that break or some serious complications from the straight marriage, died. God, and awful. Th yeah, th this must have really felt like the world ending for Stormy. Um, yeah. 
Until the end of her life, 40 years later, Stormy carried Diana's photo in her wallet. I also couldn't find any evidence that Stormy ever had another serious relationship for the rest of her life. That just kills me. That breaks my heart. Especially when you think about she couldn't grieve publicly the way that we sort of can now as queer people and how straight people can take for granted the way that they grieve. Uh, She wasn't, I mean, within the community probably, but as far as, you know, into the entire world, that wasn't necessarily a possibility. It's true. And I think about how close Stormy seemed to be with her family in Nebraska Mm -hmm. and then how eventually she's just estranged from them. Right. As she's in this relationship, as she's trying on these other gender identities, it feels really related, right? Absolutely. We don't know for sure, but it seems likely. Yeah, and I I think that's something that probably echoes with a lot of people who are listening, who have their own strained relationships or struggles or alienation from their family because of their want to live a more authentic life. And so I know plenty of people who, you know, parents may be okay with them being gay as long as they're not real loud about it or they're okay with them being gay but not okay with them being non-binary. And so oftentimes that creates that rift of like, if you're not going to, you know, see me for who I am, like I don't, I don't necessarily need to be around that. Um, and then the found family that we find within queer community oftentimes becomes that group for us. So the, the fact that this riot and the death of Diana happened in such quick succession probably played a role in the next event which is that on September 7th, Stormy quit the Jewel Box review and, except for a few charity things here and there and casual stuff, stopped performing altogether. Wow. And at this point, Stormy, who is about 50 years old, transforms her persona again from this butch lesbian performer to basically hired muscle. So she's a bouncer. She's a bouncer. She's also, during the day, a bodyguard for rich New Yorkers. Okay. And at night, she just patrols the streets in Chelsea and outside other gay and lesbian bars just to make sure no one's messing with anyone. So she's just looking to kick the shit out of some homophobes. Yes. Okay. Love it. Love her. She is like, I'm channeling her. I love it. She has a gun permit and she carried one in a holster on her side. She had a straight edge razor that she kept in her sock. She starts getting described as the cowboy of the East Village and the butch cowboy of NYC. She sometimes wears a star on her belt and she's even described as a superhero by some of her friends. So she's a kick-ass queer. She's kicking ass. She's a kick-ass queer. We need to give her a superhero name. Like... Storm's already know, taken. Well, yeah, but it's got to, yeah, Stormy, Stormy's there, but it's got to be something like the Dyke Defender. Here we go. <laughs> if you have a superhero name for Stormy Delavier, we welcome your suggestions. Please put it Please on our social out. media. We need it. Hashtag us with your superhero name for Stormy Delavier. Okay, so she's she's out there essentially being like, since the police are part of the problem with us, I am going to take it upon myself to essentially make sure that we are safe in our neighborhood. She explained okay. in 1987, quote, 
I stopped singing and I became a bodyguard, direct opposite. So when I change, I change and it's permanent. And there's no looking back, there's only going ahead. So that's how she dealt with grief. Interesting. She's also building a larger social circle. She's making friends with all the young people. She had photos of her children, as she called them, all over her walls. She's being voted the Imperial King of Greater New York a few times. She's raising money to help AIDS patients get medicine and buy Christmas presents for their families when they're too sick, and basically becoming this really unique and treasured member of the New York queer community. I love it. I I love this role. I love this new role. I mean, obviously, I love every role she's played so far, but the sort of den grandmother who takes care of the community is such a necessary, necessary role. So I'm loving this. Yeah, this is the apotheosis, right? This is where she goes from really interesting performer with an interesting background to holy cow, she's a superhero. Quite literally, right? I mean, when we talk about the different levels of how you are aligned with the community and, you know, you got the actor and ally and accomplice, right? She's like beyond accomplice at this point, making sure that this community is being cared for in all of the ways that it needs. In her New York Times obituary, a friend we've already mentioned a few times who owned the Henrietta Hudson, which is one of the places where she was a bodyguard, said she literally walked the streets of downtown Manhattan like a gay superhero. She was not to be messed with by any stretch of the imagination. Beautiful. I love it. Also, keep in mind that depending on which birth date we accept, she's probably around 50 years of age when Mm -hmm. she starts and 50 years back then that was like the golden girls that wasn't like today no 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 it's no seriously the golden girls were like what 55 when that supposed to be the younger ones are supposed to be like 55 when that show started that gives me hope that if i ever want to have a career change in the next eight to ten years that gay superhero is an option it fully is and she continued to do this well into her 80s if we accept 1920 as her birth year which again we have reason to doubt she would have been at least 85 when she stopped if we don't 82 wow that's crazy right can you imagine you're some teenager in (laughs) the late 80s and you're like i'm gonna go mess with these gay people leaving a bar and you get chased by this 80 year old butch lesbian with a I'm just gun saying like and a straight I'm razor. just saying like I'm thinking I'm thinking of like yeah like Estelle Getty like Sophia Petrillo but butch chasing with the purse and a gun and Estelle Getty would have done that too I'm in my 40s and I'm like I need a nap just didn't lie <laughs> too long at the merch for Taylor Swift and now I need to recover and how long were you in that line, Rachel? For the four and a half hours. Four and a half hours. Two you know, girls passed out. And you know what they said? Please don't take me away. I have to see her. And how old were those girls? Young, like teenagers. They Let's were see not. Them defend the streets of New York when they're eighty years old. You need to hydrate if you're going to do that. So we've really seen Stormy lead four or five lives here, right? And all of them are really trailblazing and fascinating in their way. All of them are fucking cool. Right? She's this, like, 
young mixed race androgynous queer girl who had a beautiful singing voice but literally had to defend herself from all directions she's a circus performer a blues singer a really glamorous blues singer too she became the country's most prominent drag king and finally she's this armed butch guardian angel who sort of adopted all the young people of the village and you left out that she threw arguably the first punch at stonewall Right, we're listing fascinating things about her and don't even get to the fact that she probably threw the first punch at Stonewall. Right? Like, what do you think about that? Like, how Possibly awesome... the only punch. This reminds me of when scientists will challenge somebody's religion and they'll be like, don't say that. Like, you can't say that. It's sacrilege. And I feel like a lot of people have really gotten, like, hung up on the, like, excuse me, a drag queen of color threw the first brick at Stonewall. That if you try to, like tell them the truth it's almost the sacrilege but like scientists often say to the people who are religious it's like i'm just trying to tell you how much more awesome your god actually is and, in and this it's that case, same thing it's the right, same thing where it's like i'm trying to tell you that the person was more awesome than you actually know she was more awesome but then the other people who were there were also really interesting and some of them absolutely were uh, gender non-conforming people of color tammy novak was mm -hmm. trans mm-hmm and it's kind of a lot cooler to me, too, to think that it was a broad cross or it was a broad cross section of people who rose up together. I think it's way and cooler men, and but way more interesting as well. Yeah. Yeah. And also what Stormy brings out is that when we talk about who was actually at Stonewall, people often bring up, well, it was men and it was cis men because those are the people who were allowed in. Stormy didn't start the night off in Stonewall. She came there later. Marsha P. Johnson came later because she heard what was going on, right? Yeah, Sylvia it's, Rivera was picked up off a park bench and brought later. But it doesn't make their contributions less valuable that they weren't in there when it happened. And not only that, it is makes, that not more badass? It means they were badass? more willing to help. Yeah, they were, how badass is that? They went to go help. And some people could read that as, you know, they should have stayed away. They were, you know, creating the mayhem. No, they weren't. Cops are right at the place for causing the mayhem. And we needed the mayhem. Yeah, I mean, it does take people like Stormy DeLavier to throw the first punch. Yeah. Okay, so. 85, roaming the streets. She's just really this beloved part of the community. She even often leads the New York Pride Parade in either the Stonewall Cadillac, which she called Stormy's Baby, or wearing a little rainbow camouflage helmet, or sometimes just walking in everyday clothes. Okay, okay. Yeah. In fact, she's such an important part of the New York queer community that when she didn't show up for Pride in 2010, and keep in mind, she would have been 87 to 90 at this time. Yeah. The New York Times wrote a piece about what had happened. Jeez. I'd like to read you the first couple paragraphs of that story. At noon on Sunday, thousands of marchers filled Fifth Avenue for New York City's annual gay pride parade. Nearly six miles away, on the sixth floor of a nursing home in Brooklyn, the frail, white-haired woman in beige pajamas and brown slippers in room 609 sat motionless at the edge of her bed staring out the window. She touched the medallion on her necklace, 
an image of St. Jude, the patron saint of lost causes, and fiddled with one of her rings. This one, she said of the ring on her pinky finger, I hit a guy so hard I knocked the stone out, and I hadn't gotten around to putting it back yet. Stormy had dementia. In 2009, she'd been found disoriented and dehydrated wandering the halls of the Chelsea, and she was moved to a nursing home. The end of that time story is just heartbreaking. Sitting at the edge of her bed, her mind turned again to the parade, where, in the past, she had been a fixture. She said she had a message for those who took part in the celebration. Just be themselves, like they've always been, she said. They don't have to pretend anything. They're who they are. Ms. Delavier asked what time it was, and what time the march started. At one point, she took off her slippers and seemed to look for her shoes. I think they started already, she said. They're probably wondering where I am. Stormy lived for another five years, and wow. according to her friends, she got moved into a very nice, top-quality facility where she had fantastic care and freedom to move. Not that it sounds like the first place was especially bad. They just wanted something really nice for her. And it seems as if she was visited pretty regularly by friends and former neighbors. So she lived with dementia, but it seems as if the circumstances at least were not as bad as one might fear for a woman with no surviving family at that point. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, when you look at a, a queer person born in the early 20s, when you think of, you know, what sort of a, a fitting end would be very old and well taken care of by your community is above and beyond what, what most could hope for. Yeah. She was reported to have been 93 at the time because again, she gave the birth date of 1920. She was probably closer to 90, but we don't know. Right. But what we can definitely say is that when she was born, her parents couldn't marry each other because of race whether it was in Louisiana or Nebraska or California. or California. And she lived to see gay marriage become legal in New York, where she lived by the time she died. And she was vital to jumpstarting the movement that made that happen. And when she died, Barack Obama, who also had one white parent and one black parent, was president. Just the amount of change that that woman saw and... The amount of change that that woman was at least partially responsible for. It's just incredible. It's just, I mean, just gives, it's just, it does actually, it makes me a little bit emotional just to think about it, right? You know that she suffered a lot throughout her life and yet what a full life she absolutely led. You know, absolute, absolute inspiration. I mean, I'm not going to go roam the streets of the greater Seattle area. <laughs> look at the you don't think up. yet not yet i'm not 50 yet you, you so never know you never know you don't know this trans man who hung out at henrietta hudson while stormy worked there remembered her this way he said i was always awestruck it was so affirming to see her as a butch woman that had none of the ugliness that men can have and that butch women sometimes adopt 
as their own. Her masculinity was always gentlemanly, but if you scratched the surface, there was a badass underneath. I love it. And then when she was asked who she was at some point in her 80s, Stormy said, who's Stormy? I'm a human being that survived. I've helped other people survive. That was all she said. Uh, I mean, where is this biopic, right? We got three it's hours a mini of series the is the problem. I mean, yeah, this is like, yeah, this should, yeah, this should be, this should be a limited series that is being, that is being considered for all of the Emmys. That's how I know if I want to do an episode is if I think, do I want to see this movie? And I want to see this movie, but I do want to see it as a limited series. Oh man. Well, goodness. That's so what, what, um, do we know what day, like, what is her death date? Yes. May 24th, 2014. So what you're saying is that she was approximately one year and one week away from the Obergefell versus Hodges decision. Hmm. That's, crazy. That's a good point. Yeah. That's a lot of history to see. That's a lot of history to be a part of. Don't let them silence your history, y'all. Before we wrap up, I'd like to thank and acknowledge the writers and producers of a few of our sources. Crystal Grau, William Yardley, Manny Fernandez, Elisa Goodman, and Grace at After Ellen, who all wrote fabulous articles about Stormy that included original interviews that we used as sources here and there. Michelle Parkerson, who directed a 20-minute documentary, Stormy, the Lady of the Jewel Box, which is really the best portrait you're ever going to find of Stormy. Also, In the Life Media, which produced an even shorter documentary called A Stormy Life which is held Ooh. at the UCLA Film Archives and can be found on YouTube and features some of her account of Stonewall. Right. Queer Music Heritage, which scanned and posted a number of Jewel Box Review programs, including one signed by Stormy. So you might want to check that out. She had a very elegant signature. Of course she did. Of course she did. I also really recommend checking out Stormy Sings the Blues, which has been posted on YouTube by Jazz Jericho. It features a short performance by Stormy from about 2008. You can also hear her sing a little in the Lady of the Jewel Box documentary. Our producer, Lewis, who always does an amazing job of putting our episodes together, and who we have also sent to the New York Public Library to go through Stormy's papers, because we're really hoping to find a picture of Diana, if nothing else. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you. And uh, most of all, I think I want to thank Chris Starfire for their incredible work, basically sorting out Stormy's genealogy, finding all of these old newspaper clippings, so that we can piece her background together more fully. Awesome. Tell me a little bit more about Chris. Chris lives in Oregon, is originally from Berkeley, is queer and genderqueer, severely disabled due to a number of genetic issues. They became interested in genealogy in around like 2006 and got really, really into all of the stuff they could trace about their family going back to like Canada and Ireland and then learning about extended family and, and all of this cool stuff. 
Sometime in the late 80s, they first saw Stormy, the Lady of the Jewel Box. Their mother took them to see it. And Chris says that the way Stormy moved and talked, they felt like they were seeing somebody like them, but they Mm. didn't quite have words to describe it. And they say that she also felt very familiar, in part because she sounded like their grandmother, who, interestingly, also from Nebraska, but they Mm. learned that much later. Mm -hmm. They became interested in Stormy and began applying all of this genealogical experience to finding out more about her background. When they started seeing all of these posts online about like the brave black butch lesbian who started Stonewall... Chris became interested in Stormy after seeing some of these memes that were shared by TERFs, basically, that were used to downplay the role of trans people in the gay liberation movement. They were really interested in Stormy, didn't like that that is how her story was being used. And we should be clear, Stormy is not trans. Stormy always identified as female, although she was comfortable if people did refer to her with male pronouns or call her sir or things like that. She just sort of said whatever, you know, whatever makes you feel okay. Although, I, you know, I'm a woman under all this. And at first they thought that was cool. And they started looking at the context and was like, oh, no, this mm-hmm. isn't to honor Stormy. It's to diminish Marsha P. Johnson, who, I mean, we we should say flat out, I absolutely did not start the Stonewall riots, but was certainly a key figure in the riots starting later in that evening and did a lot of amazing other things for the queer community. So what I can say to that is TERFs stop being terrible. Basically, if exclusion is in your your title, right? You're doing something wrong. Yeah, it's it's wrong. You're wrong. Inclusion inclusion right like yeah yeah turfs go home okay and also a trans woman might have been the first person to do something at stonewall because tammy novak hit a cop with her purse right so so what we're saying though is is that there was a lot of people who were involved and there were a lot of different pronouns and categories and identity markers that were being used Right. And it also just, it's sort of maddening that anyone thinks that this is what should decide whether or not you should be part of a movement. That's not how you decide who gets a seat at the table. Like it's, people have inherent humanity on their own. I'm so appreciative of Chris, of all of the, the research they have done. All of this hard work they've done is really awesome and commendable. And I'm just so, so happy and so appreciative that they shared all of this information with us. It's a valuable lesson too, that there's a lot of information just sitting out there that people aren't diving into because they're just repeating whatever they found on Wikipedia and whatever's linked there, which you shouldn't do. And an example (laughs) of that is the stuff about the marriage. You could open up major magazines with huge photos of Stormy that were not difficult to find and see things about this alleged marriage that don't show up in any printed biography or any other podcast biography that I've heard. Right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. 
I'm so happy we made this one of our first topics. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to show us some love by subscribing, rating, sharing with your friends, sharing with your enemies, sharing with people you don't know. And be sure to join us next time when our topic will be... Sylvia Rivera, who also played a key role in the Stonewall Riots. That sounds amazing. And until then, all my little queer superheroes in training continue to kick ass. Well, I mean, you know, you you listed all of your close friends as like 17th century French prostitutes on Wikipedia, and that stayed up there for like two years. So, you know, (laughs) including me. And I forgot that I did that. I can promise you all that I while I am old -er, I was not in the 1700s uh, and I was not reenacting my favorite scenes from Moulin Rouge. Thank you. (laughs) I fully forgot about that. Yeah. So do your research, kids. Wikipedia vandalism isn't cool, kids. But if it <laughs> we is, were, we were list all of your friends as 17th century French prostitutes. French, French prostitutes. Uh, um, we were so, we were young and dumb, guys. Mm, now we're just dumb. Now we're just dumb. <laughs> <laughs>